Hello, before we get started on this special episode, we wanted to let you know that there is a map of Magnamund at www.magnamund.com. This map may be of use to you as you follow along with this episode. Thank you and enjoy. In 1984, Joe Deaver released the first of the Lone Wolf Gamebooks, introducing readers to the Kai Lords and the world of Magnamund in which you were the hero. Now, 40 years later, those books are coming back, and we're here to talk about them. It's the Journeys Through Magnamund podcast. Part one of the Darklands War found the Freelands very much on the defensive, desperately seeking a way to strike back against an invincible foe. Ancient magics were reawoken, some Dark Lords were pushed back, but these were only temporary reprieves, and they cost the lives of some of Magnamon's greatest heroes. Now, in part two, this tragic trajectory continues as the Dark Lords rally and more and more losses occur for the Freelands. However, in the midst of this fire, new heroes are forged and the answers to long-held fan questions are finally discovered. How did Banadin become Guildmaster? What happened in Vasagonia? What became of Lord Pido? And who is the Slave Master. We jump into things right away with MS-6065, the biggest and most eventful year of the war. So hang on, we have a lot to cover. Nag is furious about Minashka's recent losses and sends him on a final mission of redemption, tasking him that Telestria, Palmyrian, and Slovia must fall. Dark Lords Klanzor, Manashka, Zanshaw, and Shebnar work together to drive back the defenders of all the lands to their last cities. Nag also sends Dark Lord Slutar into the Pass of Moitura, which is the major point of entry into Summerland from the south. Summerland moves its armies to the pass, blockading it against the Dark Lord armies, just as Nag had predicted for he wishes to force Summerland out of the war, keeping their resources devoted to the defense of the past so they are no longer able to come to the aid of the rest of the Freelands. With Summerland thus barricaded, Nag sends the Master of Sorcery, Dark Lord Tamog, southeast to begin assaulting the Magiocracy of Desai. Tamog is joined by the incredibly brutal Katelu. Desai has the Elder Magi, Aside from the Brotherhood of the Crystal Star, they are the only ones with magic powerful enough to strike back against the Dark Lords, and the Crystal Star is occupied now in defending Summerland. This means that if the Elder Magi fall, then Nag's path to victory becomes very clear, and the Elder Magi are powerful, but they are also in decline. Their Vakaros warrior magicians are not prepared to win a war against the sheer number and rage of the forces set against them. However, at this moment, good fortune again smiles on the Desai, sending them aid from two unexpected sources. 
First comes Greystar the Wizard, regent of the Free Alliance of Southern Magnamund, a hero as powerful as Lone Wolf, and one who has had his own series of books. Second, Lord Pido is confirmed to appear in defense of his homeland, taking charge of a combined army of the Vakaros, reinforcements from the Herbalish of Batar, and the remaining few Elder Magi still left alive at this point in Magnamon's history. They mount a fearsome defense in the nations of Firalund, Lorden, and Kakush, which makes up Desai's western border. Now we turn to a tale of failure. This is not a story of the failures of the Freelands, however. It is a story of the maniacal bloodlust of Dark Lord Shebnar. Shebnar is considered by most of the other Dark Lords to be their weakest link. He is not as physically potent as the other sons of Nar. And his power is concentrated in the ability to torture and destroy mortal life, a pastime that amuses other Dark Lords, but does not form the crux of their existence the way it does for Shebnar. Shebnar is in fact brilliant, one of the greatest innovators of the Dark Lords, but he turns all of these designs and ambitions purely to his own amusement. He lacks the will in the allies to actually see him accomplish great things. For if a course of action does not involve torment, Shebnar seems incapable of giving it enough attention to accomplish anything. Knowing this, Nag orders him to Slovia, which he deems a seemingly easy conquest, figuring it's within Shebnar's capabilities and attention span. The mistake Nag makes is that Slovia is embroiled in guerrilla warfare. It's a slow cleanup, and Shebnar simply doesn't have the staying power for it. Immediately, Shebnar is supremely bored. He decides to hasten the invasion with a foolhardy move. Shebnar is owed a favor by Dark Lord Taktal, who has stayed in Helgegadad to guard the device that allows the Dark Lords to breathe the air outside their land. Shebnar had tortured for Taktal, a powerful servant of his rival Ganesh. He now calls in that favor, asking for Alaja Kekka. These are giant tank-like machines, usually used to convey ore through the Darklands. But Shebnar redesigns it. He loads it up with weapons, most prominently lava-spewing cannons, and he renames the machine the Berezoth. Shebnar uses it to raise entire villages and towns, following up with his own dark magic to turn the fallen of the land into fiery undead, another creation of his called the Kagazutagan. This is a massive tactical error. Let's examine why. First, even though the Berezoth is disguised as a monster to scare superstitious villagers, it reveals earlier than Nag wanted that the Dark Lords have gained a new level of technological mastery. The Lajakeka are indeed something the Freelands didn't know existed until Shebnar brought it into the field. Second, this weaponized Lajakeka is an amazing device of destruction, one that could have been put to great use on the front lines, yet Shebnar does not tell anyone about it, keeping it for his own plaything and putting it on the field in a manner that makes it a target. Finally, 
Shebnar's delight in claiming the bodies of the slain as part of his growing army is meant to dismay and dishearten the defenders, but seeing their dead abused such actually drives them to renewed fury. Aided by the Erbilish, the rebels of Slovia come together to plan a coordinated strike against the Lajakeka and destroy the machine. They drive it into the chasm of the Stornloss, a gigantic karstic network bordering the Storn River, and they steal a piece of the magic which powers it, the essence of the Lake of Blood, the Nengad Kor Adez, which surrounds Helgadad. This essence goes back to the Erbilish laboratories in Batar for study, something that will have long-reaching consequences for the Dark Lords, stretching all the way up into the later books in the series. This is a massive loss for the Dark Lords. It loses them one of their best weapons, grants the Resistance key information about one of their most guarded secrets, the Lake of Blood, and on top of this, Shebnar is forced to retreat, failing to conquer even war-torn Slovia. As a punishment, he is barred from re-entering the Darklands for the rest of the war and forced back to the front lines. He will never go past the Durnkrag range ever again. While all this is happening, Banadin is approached by Sage Gwynion. Gwynion convinces him that it is possible to liberate his city of Veretta, conquered by Nag and MS-5060. For Gwynion has seen a prophecy. This is the awakening of the dragons. He believes it is linked to the legendary city upon which Veretta is supposed to have been built, Sinx, the draconic capital of Nixator himself, deep below the Veretian Plateau. Gwynion correctly divines the location in these ruins of an incredibly ancient artifact created by the precursors of the Krokarix, the same creatures who inhabited the Cauldron of Fear in Lone Wolf 9. A plan is struck. Banadin will use his powers to counteract the effects of the cursed Cassiornian gold and win back the loyalty of mercenary companies currently serving Zog against their will. Meanwhile, Gwynion will recover the artifact. Does this plan work? Well, when Dark Lord Zog marches on Lyris, his army encounters the dragon statues on the wall of Veretta, which come to life with draconic power, stone claw, and a fiery breath that burns even Zog's skin. His armies are destroyed, and Zog is forced into retreat. Lyris is liberated, after which the power which animated the dragon statues fades forever. However, the Dark Lords don't know this, and Gwynion is able to use this bluff to create a mustering point for the remnants of the Lyrian army, and Lyris remains free throughout the rest of the war. MS-5065 ends with Lord Arden's body, finally making it to Batar where it is discovered that the only way to save the powerful sorcerer is to channel energy into him directly from the plane of light. Now this can be done using an ancient Shianti obelisk found in the Vasagonian dry main. The obelisk of Razer was once used by the evil Shianti to channel power from the plane of darkness. A gray star quests to it and modifies it to save 
Lord Arden's life. There are consequences, however, to Moog, master of magic, takes control of the relic and turns it back to its original purpose, siphoning evil energy from it, empowering himself and his armies, and securing the fall of Firaland and Kakush. Lorden holds due to the proximity of Batar and the power of the Herbalish, but the Desai's main forces are driven deep into their homeland and cut off from aiding the rest of Magnamund. Now, there is one last thing that must be discussed this year, and that is a question that many have had for many years. The history of the character known as the Slave Master. Kadarian was the name of a cruel mine owner in the Zalbar Mountains in the northwest of Magador, an area where the Drakram interbred with the population and where people spoke a variant of the Giak language. Kadarian grew so wealthy that he founded his own mercenary company. He allied himself, as many did, with the Dark Lords when the war began. Now, it must be said, Kadarian was not a worshipper of darkness, but he was self-centered, and he believed that allying with the Dark Lords would allow him to obtain the most power and wealth. He was more intelligent than most mercenaries, and he proved himself extremely useful in organizing troops during the war. Such was his skill at managing slaves that he drew the direct attention of Nag, who forced Dark Lord Shal to employ him to manage the gigantic mines of Arnak in the Darklands. Elevated to a position higher than most humans could aspire to, Kadarian obtained everything he sought, nearly absolute power over his domain and wealth undreamed of. But having been allowed to grow so close to the Dark Lords, Kadarian also began to see what they truly were, a force which would annihilate all mortal life on Magnamund if they won the war. It was at this time that he was found by spies of the Elder Magi, Kadarian, by now having seen the wrong that he had inflicted in his rise to power, resolved to put his own life in extreme risk and agreed to become a double agent working for the Freelands. Only by now, his original name had long been set aside and he had taken on his new moniker of the Slave Master. So August, this part of the war sees the first return of a very important character in the canon, and that is Greystar, Greystar the Wizard. Oh, yes. Now, what, just out of curiosity, what is your, what was your experience of Greystar in the Lone Wolf series? I mean, was that, was Greystar one that you read at, in your original run through the series? Did you have it when you were young? Okay, so we had a local bookstore, and um, I would order my Lone Wolf books directly through them because otherwise they'd they'd never reach the shelf. They they wouldn't they wouldn't have ordered them normally. So I had to special order all of the all of the Deaver stuff, and I got a call at home from the bookstore letting me know that a new Lone Wolf book had come out, and I was shocked because the 
I kind of already knew the production schedule and I knew that there wasn't one supposed to be out. So I, I raced down there. Okay. Okay. To be fair, I beg my parents. We get in the car. <laughs> you didn't literally run. <laughs> so, so I, I did not race down there. If I had been driving, that would have been a much bigger problem. Uh, but so we go down there and uh, it looks like a lone wolf book, but there's something seriously wrong. I, I have no idea who this emo kid is on the cover of the book. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, and I know the title of the next book, and it's got nothing to do with a gray star. But after I read it, I was hooked. So I like you came to gray star with a bit of a surprise, though, definitely not as it was released. I didn't find a copy till years after my first read of the series. Uh, I found it in Powell City of Books, which my hometown of Portland, Oregon is rather famous for. And was very surprised. I didn't know Graystar existed or who it was. I was never able to get more than the first book. So to this day, I've yet to read all the Graystar series. But for people who have read the series, and even the first book I read, the character is quite popular. Oh, definitely. I think one of the things that, that makes Graystar so popular is that he's vastly different from Lone Wolf. And yet he still has sort of a chosen one feel to him. He's still a hero that can do things nobody else can do, but his abilities, his powers, even his character is, is almost an entire inverse. Well, he's innately magical. He's not innately physical. He, he is an inheritor of this ancient power, but he's almost like the other side of the coin from Lone Wolf. Uh, if, if Lone Wolf is Kai, then Greystar is Ishir. Uh, he, he, the power of the Moonstone is vital to the whole story, uh, and he is the he's the Shianti chosen one to Kai's chosen one of Lone Wolf, uh, and I love that about him. It's a dichotomy. And it's a great character, and in a way, because he's not chosen in in the same sense as Lone Wolf. Lone Wolf, you know, is especially as he gets older, becomes essentially an avatar of good, and his own you know that he's not going to choose to do things that aren't good i'd say even early in the series some of those morality tests that you get that we've talked about kind of disappear much later on where he's just not going to he's not going to murder a defenseless old man for his fire sphere <laughs> he's, he, he's not going to cheat to get a bow he doesn't actually need right and and so some of the the characters still fantastic and fun to play as but you know, he is a paladin kind of character. You know what to expect from him. Graystar, Especially later on. Yeah, definitely. And Star is kind of in the name, but he's a little more gray in that he you're not quite sure where he's going or how he's going to accomplish his goals. Power is still potentially a draw for him. Love is still a draw for him. He's not just an avatar of good. He is a he's a living human with his own desires. Right. I mean, he was he was raised on the Isle of Lorne and but he wasn't raised to be a hero. He wasn't he wasn't given that kind of Kai training that that reinforces the the, the bright and shiny aspects of Kai Lorddom. He was raised to be a vessel of power. So what has he been doing since since we left him? I, I mean, I've I've not read the books, all of them, as I said, but I have, of course, studied, you know, the timelines and 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 
filled myself up with some of the basic knowledge. I know that he his mission is to fight the Shadokan Empire in the south and southern Magnamund, which is ruled by the Witch King, Shazarak. He succeeds in this. What has happened since then? All right. So in MS5057, he succeeds in his mission. He destroys the Shadokin Empire. Uh, Shasarak is defeated. And at that point, he starts to bring back together the, the shattered aspects of the Empire as the Free Alliance of Southern Magnemont. That They reject evil. He gives back the Moonstone uh, to the Shianti. And he occupies himself dealing with the kind of threats that the Shadokin Empire tried to tried to rule and use. He resists. So he's fighting extra planar threats. Uh, he's fighting in, he, he's dealing with the infighting of some of the other nations of Southern Magnamond. He's watching a, a certain nation with a certain vampiric ruler real closely. And. I know this is going to lead some fans to ask, so I'm going to I'm going to get ahead of the crowd and ask right now. Greystar facing a Dark Lord. Really, what is the power matchup there? Who who has the upper hand? <sighs> OK, it's a fair question, and I think the answer might surprise some fans. Greystar could take out a Dark Lord. Wow. But he'd have to hit first. Got it. He's got to knock him down. <laughs> he, he has the gift. He has the channel. His magic is Shianti. It is Shianti sorcery. It is powerful enough to hurt, potentially even kill a Dark Lord. But he has to get that first shot. It is MS 5066, and the Freelands are in serious trouble. Eru has fallen to Dark Lords Dakushna and Marugar. Zog has moved east across southern Summerland, crossing under the Wildlands, destroying the town of Eshner entirely, and headed for Cloesia to prepare an army to attack Durinur. Meanwhile, in Desai, Valerian falls to Dark Lord Catelu. With this, it is finally cut off from the other Freelands, and the Elder Magi, along with Greystar the Wizard, prepare to make final defenses. By cutting off Summerland and Desai, the Dark Lords have now effectively conquered most of Northern Magnamut, reducing this resistance to a series of cut-off nations, Summerland in the north, Desai in the east, and Telestria and her allies in the west, around which the net begins to close. It is also at this time that Vasagonia's civil war finally comes to a head. In the fight for a new Zakin, two contenders emerge. Amir Shuali wants to change the course of Vasagonian politics and align his nation with the Freelands to strike back against the Dark Lords. He controls the loyalty of most of the Sharnism, the powerfully skilled Imperial Guard. His rival is Lazar of Bisotan, backed by the Council of Vasagonia, people who benefited greatly under the reign of Zakankima, and they wish to remain allies of Nag. Recognizing the importance of keeping Vasagonia destabilized, Nag himself heads for the Desert Kingdom to ensure Lazor gains the throne, much as Hakon did with Kima in Shadow on the Sand. 
this works, and with Nag driving fear into the supporters of Amir Shawali, Lazar gains the position of Zakin. Once again, Vasagonia is allied with the Dark Lords. But then something not even Nag could predict happens. An assassination attempt is made on Nag by his fellow Dark Lord, Norg, acting on the orders of, and greatly empowered by, an unrevealed third party. The attempt fails within a hair's breadth, and Nag is forced to pursue Norg back to the Darklands. Shawali, still convinced Vasagonia can coexist with the other nations of Magnamund, sends his Sharnism followers to support the Freelands in defiance of Lazar and eludes capture by escaping into the desert. Thus, not all hope is lost for the Desert Kingdom. Now let us look north to Summerland, which is reliving the days of the fall of the Kai Lords. Dark Lord Slutar has prepared a colossal army, the size of which has not been seen since Zagarna marched his forces across the Dern Crag and crushed the monastery. Slutar moves his forces into the Moitora Pass, emulating the days of Lord Vashna in his battle against King Olnar I. With Lone Wolf gone and the young Kai he had been tutoring not yet able to defend the nation, it is the Brotherhood of the Crystal Star who the King of Homeguard must now turn to. A quest is undergone to find Louis Kimar's guild staff, which was hidden in a remote place when the old wizard died. One of the most powerful artifacts on Magnamund, which allows mass transportation of troops via teleportation. On this quest go three men, the venerable guildmaster of the Crystal Star, who is the only one who knows where the artifact has been hidden, Banadin, the most promising of the Guildmaster's students, and Pido, who has arrived in Summerlin unexpectedly to give his aid as a representative of Desai. The quest is doomed from the start. Every step is harried by the Dark Lords, as if they have a way of spying on the group's movements. Pido disappears while fighting off powerful agents from Slutar and the Guildmaster himself is assassinated. Banadin alone continues with his mission and retrieves the Guild Staff, then uses its power to summon reinforcements from Veretta, Duriner, and other allies of Summerland to the Moitora Pass. They surround and defeat Sutar's army. For his deeds and accomplishments, Banadin is appointed the new Guildmaster. Here we are, MS-5066. Things are really coming to a head. Only a couple questions about, about this section, though. And they really concern uh, Banadon and what's kind of going on there. Because Louis Kamar is mentioned for the first time since book three. And I was surprised to see that Louis Kamar has passed away. Well, maybe not super surprised. He he was looking pretty old and the and and Calte could not have been good for his you know consumption. <laughs> uh, you know, he, he even in the book it talks about how rough he looks uh because of his confinement there and and what he went through in Calte. At least he he basically suffers a natural death. He he dies of old age. 
See, and that, I'm, I'm glad to hear that because I actually had this sort of sinking feeling he was assassinated or, or something like that. Oh, it, it's not that the Dark Lords didn't try, uh, but no, he manages to survive that. He's well protected and he's still very powerful right up until his last moments. But eventually he passes of natural causes. What, what year does he pass? It, the specific date isn't defined, but it's between MS 5061 and 62. So sometime between Cauldron of Fear and Dungeons of Torgar. So he doesn't actually see the beginning of the war. Not quite, no. You know, I'm kind of glad for that. I don't know why. I have this soft spot for Loy Kamar. I mean, he's a trooper, right? He, yeah. Even, even as a, a crotchety old man who really just wants to go back to his tower and 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 help control the the, the brotherhood and, and train new students, but life just doesn't let him. Yeah, I think that's it. I because I felt like he survives Calte, and you just kind of want to know that like he survived Calte and got to live the rest of his life in a very warm place, like maybe a sauna or something. <laughs> yeah, 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 pretty much. Okay, so, so so then going back to this, so his guild staff, of course, becomes this object of importance. Now, the guild master who goes with Banadan, do we know much about him or who this is? He is not, at least during the during the periods of, of lore that you learn in the books, he's not really defined. Um, we do know who he is, and, and he will be expanded upon before the end of the series, but there's nothing I can share about him right now. Being Guildmaster of the Brotherhood of the Crystal Star does not tend to end well for anyone. And this is how Banadin becomes the new Guildmaster. Right, and kind of bucks the trend. Yeah, because he's around. He's he sticks around for a while, though. He sticks around for a while. Yeah, it 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 helps that that Banadin, because of his life experiences, you know, partially kicked off by the the fall of the of the Kai Monastery, his life experiences makes him a much tougher, better developed, better traveled, and and better trained mage than most. So he comes into the guildmastership. With adventuring experience, with, with survival instincts, I think the survival instincts are super important. I mean, in a way, he's the Indiana Jones of L- the Lone Wolf series, like a magical Indiana Jones. I mean, he travels around, you know, going to these ancient places. We hear a little bit about these side adventures he goes on with his with his skyship of dwarves. I mean, <laughs> yeah, with, with, his, with his awesome sidekicks. Yeah, exactly. Uh, he's yeah. I mean, now now one question quick about Banadin and I'm spring. This has come to me just as we're talking. So I'm springing this on you. But. In a way, he becomes sort of the the mage of legend that Vonatar wanted to be. Is this is this not correct? No, it's actually a really good point. Um, effectively, Banadin becomes everything that Vonatar wanted to be. I, I think that there, there there is intentional irony from Joe on that. Yeah, yeah, and he teams up with this warrior, and the prophecies met. It's just an interesting. It's an interesting thing to think about as to maybe, you know, his longevity as the guildmaster is almost preordained. It is absolutely arguable that the uh, well, it, it's definitely arguable that the prophecy could have been multiple people. And and maybe that that was intentional. The, the worst thing you can do is set up a chosen one and then he and then he trips on a rock and dies. I like it. So we send up the chosen many. 
<laughs> yes, exactly. Not the chosen one. It's the chosen five or six. Chosen Baker's does. Heck, I've heard theories in the fan community that, you know, there's even multiple timelines and that explains all the mo- the lone wolf instant deaths. And, you know, there are lone wolves who got crushed under a mask. So, but that's a topic for another day. <laughs> Damn it. We lost another lone wolf reboot. And so we come at last to the final years of the war. These three years between MS-5067 and MS-5070 set up for the final destruction of the Freeland defenses as the Dark Lords begin their last march of doom across Northern Magnamund, while also preparing to invade Southern Magnamund for the first time. Southern Magnamon is separated from the north by the massive river Tantarias, a river the size of a sea. It is across this that Ganesh leads the first invasion of Southern Magnamund, heading into Lencia, while Dakushna destroys the Lencian fleet in the Gulf of Lencia. Traitors within Lencia itself, many of them mages promised power by the Dark Lords, rise up and begin attacking their own country, allowing Ganesh and Dakushna to enter the Crusaders' Rest, a massive graveyard holding Lencian Crusaders of old. Here they work dark magic and raise the Crusaders from the dead into the service of Nar. They begin raising the Lencian coast. It is at this moment that King Sarnak, long thought to have perished in Boar, emerges from hiding and challenges Ganesh to mortal combat. Ganesh is unable to resist such a tasty challenge, and he gleefully goes to the place of the duel, the very doorstep of the Boar kingdom, only to have Sarnak flee him. Sent into a bestial bloodlust, the Dark Lord gives chase, rushing into the tunnels under the Great Helm Reach, the Great Estuary which bisects Eastern Lencia. He rushes right into a trap. Captain Prague and his Boris allies use boom powder to collapse the tunnel on top of Ganesh. Though it does not kill the Dark Lord, it buys Lencia time to rally its forces. But elsewhere, disaster looms. Telestria and Palmyrian finally fall to Klanzor and Manashka. Western Desai falls to Catelu and Tamog. The warfront is driven all the way to the Desai city of Anasundi. Greystar and Lord Arden gather with Magi Ramoa and prepare for a final stand. No help is coming to them. Durinur has been cut off by Zog who has conquered Cloesia and the Wildlands. The Durinese retreat behind their mountains and prepare for the worst. At this point, precious few kingdoms remain in the north. Boar still stands, as do the nations of Chaman and Batar, though they are under heavy assault. Mrugar is blockading Boar. Zanshal and Shebnar are pincher attacking Chaman and Batar. And what of Summerland? that ancient bastion of hope. Well, two years ago, Dark Lord Kragenskull disappeared from the front. Secretly, he was overseeing the construction of a huge naval base at Argazad in the Gulf of Helgenad on the northeasternmost border of the Darklands, very close to Summerland. 
it is from here that he now launches a new massive fleet of ironclad warships to attack Summerland from the coast. These ironclads are constructed using steam technology invented by Jen Rodalian and his daughter Leandra, who hail from the town of Rockstarn and who were involved in a plot dating back to the days of the Chasm of Doom and Lord Hakon, a plot which you can discover by playing the Lone Wolf video game by Forge Reply, which is available on pretty much every system. These ironclads destroy Summerlin's northern fleets and invade the Kurlundan Isles. Vanadin uses all of his powers to try and destroy them, making a stand at Silvershore, the main town of the archipelago. But his guild staff is shattered by Kragenskull, who faces him in direct combat, and Vanadin is forced to flee for his life. The people of Summerland prepare for the final eventuality. It is MS 5069, on the eve of the Feast of Famarn, that Lord Ramoa dreams of Lone Wolf's return to Magnamund. He takes one of the last remaining Desian skyships to Summerland and alerts Banadin. Together the two make preparation for Lone Wolf's return, for it is their last and only hope. As the clock ticks away, the final days of the Freeland Alliance, Batar's Herbalish use the studies done on the essence recovered from Shebnar's Lajakika to develop a method of purification that will be able to, over time, cure the Darklands of its toxic waste. They know it will not help win the war, but they prepare this concoction to ensure a glimmer of hope for future generations. If they can keep the Dark Lords from fully decimating the land and making it uninhabitable, then perhaps forces will still emerge that are capable of fighting them in the far future. Still, these efforts do not go unnoticed. Aware that the Batarians are up to something, Dark Lord Narg, somehow reconciled with Nag despite his traitorous attempt on the Archlord's life, attacks the country directly in an attempt to destroy the Batarian research. Batar stands no chance against his power, but they are not alone. Lord Paido rises one last time from the ashes of war to do battle with Dark Lord Norg. It is a battle met far from the eyes of any observers. Thus, no one knows of Paido's true fate However, we can reveal it to you, as we know that fans will want to know this. Paido and Norg are actually still fighting during the events of Book 12, their battle commencing at around the same time that Lone Wolf faces off against Dark Lord Nag. With Lone Wolf's victory and the destruction of the machine that allows the Dark Lords to breathe the pure air of Magnamund, Norg is brought to his knees and Paido is able to slay the Dark Lord. However, Paido loses his own life in this final attack, and together their souls are dragged down to the hells of Nar. So we have these other empires to check in with. We know Vasagonia, we know Rule are active in the war. We know 
Shazarok's been defeated by this time by Greystar, but they're not helping the Dark Lords, obviously. But there are some other forces that just sprung to mind I'm curious about. You mentioned, uh, we kind of hinted at, at, at this other kingdom ruled by Sejanaz, who will not come into the series for a very long time, but he's active here. He's been active for forever. What's his role? Is he doing anything in the war? Not really. It's important to remember that Sejanaz is ancient, and he's ancient because he got his power directly from Nar. He almost considers himself uh, a champion of Nar. He does not really consider the Dark Lords to be supreme leaders at all. Uh, he's arrogant enough to think that he's above them. That's so Sejanaz. But he, he considers himself to be above them or at least separate from them. He doesn't acknowledge their authority. If they had come down, if they'd gotten as far as him and had attacked any of his enemies, he might have he might have allied with them. He might have attempted to help them if he thought he'd get something out of it. Since they didn't, he didn't. Got it. Okay. And what about the ice barbarians? Because they've been freed from Vonatar now. And... You know, they've attacked Northern Magnamon in the past. Do they look at this as an opportunity? A few of them might have, but it's important to remember two things. One, they have a new Brumalmark. And two, they're not innately or or they're not born evil. They're just a, they're an isolationist group of tribes. They do not do any kind of organized attack. And they certainly don't take orders from the Darklands. And looking at the rest of the world. And kind of just thinking about what might have been. Which places in the world do you think would have held out longest against the Dark Lords? It's the, the more remote and militarily strong nations that would have survived. So you've got places like Sion, like Shadaki. The Isle of Lorne would definitely have survived much, much longer just because of the power involved there. So things, things that were isolated and strong enough to survive. Now, the Dark Lords would not have tolerated their existence forever. Right. You could almost see the, the Shianti left on the Isle of Lorne actually like using the Moonstone, which I think they still had at this point, to like leave, then letting themselves be you know, finally destroyed here. Yeah, the, the, the most logical outcome would be that they would see the rest of the world falling. They'd realize that it's over. And they'd, and they'd say, go, again? <laughs> what? <laughs> and, and, and I'm assuming that the Dark Lords were going to subjugate their allies, too. The Vasagonians, um, even people that the, the centers, you know, people that have helped them. They have to. Uh, not not only is it in their nature, but it, it's basically the terms of the of the eternal conflict. They they have to subjugate everything on Magnamund. It's the whole point. Yeah, I want to ask about that eternal conflict because obviously this is you know any war in Magnamund that's fought between the forces of evil and the forces of good. So we're not talking the Stormlands wars. We're not talking the the bickering and infighting that happens in most nations. But when it involves directly Nars forces and the forces of good, it is really, we can call it a war, but it's a battle in the greater war that has raged for eons 
and across worlds and even dimensions. So if the Darklands War had gone another way and won here, what what would that have looked like? Or, or maybe even the other side with good wins. What does that look like? What does it even mean to have the 51%? Well, there is no good answer I can give to that question that isn't an absolute spoiler. So I, I can't answer it directly. I can just frame the stakes. The stakes are that the material plane that is Aeon uh, was born of the union of both evil and good. It was reality as anyone on Magnamund knows it was created by a, a, a union of evil and good, of darkness and light. Neither aspect can be permanently removed or destroyed without unraveling everything. Right. And that's, yeah, well, I know we can't go too further into that, but it, that's the question that's been in my mind. You know, it is a, it is a place of balance. It's an, it's a universe of balance. And so when that balance is upset one way or the other, I, I almost struggle to see it as, as a positive thing. If I, if I, if I can be so bold. Well, right. Exactly. Uh all that I can say is that is that neither side can be permanently destroyed. The defeat and destroy are not the same thing. And so if the war were to end, if one side were to win, one thing that that would mean was that that side dominates Aeon. Because the, the planets that were won to the side of good they're still planets, quote unquote, of good. But the dominion of one side or the other, the end of the conflict would definitely make a difference. And and would there, maybe you can answer this, but would would the war really end there? Or would it just mean that now one side has to push back eternally to push that 51% back to 49% or 50%? I can only give you a couple of answers there. Uh, by the terms of the eternal conflict, once a planet is conquered, once a place is conquered, it stays conquered as per the, the terms of the, of the eternal conflict. War, worlds that are dominated, worlds that are won, stay won. But that's the definition of the eternal conflict. Once the conflict is done, therefore meaning not quite so eternal as all that, maybe everything changes. Maybe suddenly the worlds that are won can be fought again. It is possible that, like you said, maybe now there are there could be rallies. We don't know yet. Maybe it secretly becomes Freeway Warrior. <laughs> Really, this entire episode is the first time for all this information. And I know I was honored. I, I, me and August were both honored to have been given access to this and to be the heralds to share it with you. Our next book in the series will take us back in time now to the moment where Lone Wolf has fallen into the Dazyarn. Books 11 and 12 are what I like to call the most epic side quest ever. <laughs> well then, we will be seeing you for the first part of that side quest next time. 
Thank you so much for joining us. And as always, for, for Summerland, Summerland and, and the Kai. Thank you for listening to this episode of Journeys Through Magnemind. Please help us by rating this episode or leaving a review. More than anything, this gets us in front of more listeners and helps us bring new readers to the world of Magnemind, while also rediscovering Kylords who haven't yet learned that Lone Wolf is back. The Lone Wolf intro theme is created by Ed Hicks. Incidental music is made by Alexander Nakarada. Find him on Patreon to support him and gain access to hundreds of songs for your own projects. Finally, what you're listening to now is the latest track from the Brotherhood of the Crystal Star. Visit brotherhood.rocks to download their music and learn more about their awesome quest. Through the ice Take me through the traitor's gate Steal in my eyes The March of War. The Stormlands falling means our homes and lives are next, but there's something you can do. Telestrian war bonds are available now. Contact your local Kazian cartel today. Every bond you buy is another arrow in the quiver of our boys in the field. War bonds. Buy one today for freedom and victory. <laughs>